I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Chips, the soccer podcast from Vice Sports. My name is Aaron Gordon. As always, I'm a staff writer here at Vice Sports. And joining me on the line this week is, shockingly, Will McGee. Will, how are you? You're back. I'm back. Yeah, I'm fine. Still bitterly resentful about having been kicked off the podcast last week. But uh, Well, hold on, hold on, hold on. You really get you really get kicked off. We brought a guest on. I asked you if you would like to be involved in the conversation, and you humbly pointed out that you didn't have much to contribute to a conversation about MLS and American soccer and the diversity of the American soccer scene and how to best market to that diversity, which I thought was a very reasonable point. And we both came to the conclusion that there was no need for you to waste your time sitting on the show and twiddling your thumbs. I don't I don't see how that's kicking you off. It came to a mutual conclusion. That is a politician's answer to how we came about last week for me not to be on the podcast. That is a very GOP answer. Whoa. I was Whoa. kicked off. Excuse, excuse, <laughs> excuse you, Will Me. That is, that is an epithet that I won't stand for over here. <laughs> Sorry. Well, anyways, you're back now. That's what's important. Because we have nothing to talk about. There's like nothing going on in the soccer world except for internationals, where it's the international break. There are lots of World Cup qualifiers going on, and they're all pretty boring. I mean, it's kind of fun to watch everyone straining to find something to be interested in when there very clearly is really nothing worth being interested in. Well, I think you probably shouldn't drop that like absolute bomb after about two minutes of the podcast. I mean, we're trying to keep listeners here, not just like tell them how tedious the world is and then yeah, don't listen to the rest of this, guys. Don't even fucking bother. We don't have anything to say. I respect our <laughs> listeners, and I know that they know that the international break is boring. And rather than being like all the other podcasts and sports writers out there who are trying to talk you into caring about the international break, <laughs> I feel like we should just come clean with them and be like, look, guys, the Euro- the European qualifiers are just a bunch of really good teams playing a bunch of really bad teams, and we all know how this is going to shake out, except for like one good country isn't going to make the World Cup, and it'll probably be the Netherlands, and everyone's just going to pretty much shrug and be like, oh, that was totally worth it because one good team didn't make it, whereas we've gotten like 98% of the games are terrible. No, I mean, you're right. We should, I suppose, be honest with our listeners. This comment is directed right at the listener. 
we will endeavour to make the international break amusing and something you want to listen to us talk about for the next half an hour so do please keep listening and don't take Aaron's complete maudlin attitude towards the international break as wrote for the tone of the rest of this podcast which will hopefully be funny well I think it's interesting that we've completely switched the roles that I think we would more stereotypically (laughs) hold like I feel like England it's usually the ones who are like oh the fucking international break why won't we just get back to our glorious premier league of happiness whereas Americans are usually the ones all amped up over international soccer because We love anything that gives us an excuse to be rampant patriots. Yeah, I mean, we were going to talk about the differing perceptions, I guess, of the international break in our various countries. I think we should probably revert to type now, and I should go back to being the sort of miserable, deadpan European guy, and you can be the effervescent American again. Okay, I'm not going to go completely to type, (laughs) because then that means I have to wear like an American flag bandana and start making quasi-racist chants. Yeah, there you go. Just shout USA over and over again. (laughs) No, but I mean, seriously, though, there is one thing that you mentioned that I wasn't really aware of was how many people in England don't really like the English national team, or at least resent it very much. Yeah, I think the overall attitude towards the English national team at the moment is one of bitter, bitter resentment, but also just sort of general kind of disaffection, which is a bit stranger because there have been periods in history and in time when the English national team has been kind of unpopular, but they've always been sort of lovably unpopular. Like in the 80s, basically, England was shit, but I think people still enjoyed watching them and still felt that England games like bigger currencies, etc., etc., Now we've reached a new level of national apathy, I think, mainly because not only has the national team underachieved, as it has chronically since probably Italia 90 or maybe Euro 96, at the same time they have played some absolutely god-awful football in the last few years, uh, especially under Roy Hodgson, where it was fucking dire, quite frankly. So, yeah, I mean, there's a reason that uh, we we are disaffected here. And it's, it's very weird. I don't think in my lifetime the England national team has ever really been at a lower ebb in terms of its kind of popularity. I think a lot of people have just either switched off or stopped going to the stadium or just just don't care, basically. Is it just a results-based thing? Like, because you guys aren't good, people have checked out? Like, if you got better results under Southgate, do you think people would kind of revert to form potentially i mean i think a big a big part of the problem is that the way that qualifiers work now like european qualifiers for instance like you meant oh you know the world cup qualifiers amongst like european teams as you mentioned they are bloated they're huge england play some absolutely terrible teams there's kind of lithuania slovenia like there's always some team like san marino that gets thrown in for us to like batter eight nil in a game that's just utterly utterly pointless and like to be honest, people are sick of watching that. And then under Hodgson, obviously England kind of got this kind of reputation for winning all of their qualifiers and then being appallingly bad at like major tournaments, which just makes the whole thing feel even more disaffecting. I guess obviously, obviously, if results picked up and Gareth Southgate did well at a major tournament, people would be probably be interested again. But I mean, the ultimate thing really is just that England play better football because, as I said, there, there have been times in history where the results have been crap but where the football's still been entertaining enough or there've still been players in the team that are sort of, you know, kind of box office enough to really get really get um, people excited and people going. And that, at the moment, it just seems that there's a distinct lack of that. Even if there's been a little bit of an upturn in the way they play under Southgate in the last few games, 
basically it has been I don't know he's he's trying to kind of reestablish the team after probably five or six years of them being not only terrible but also boring which is a really really very difficult job basically yeah but at the same time there's tons of talent on the team and, and like exciting attacking talent too like there's no reason that the team has to be boring no i mean yeah that's a good point that obviously like Deli ali harry kane there's a few people in the team who are you know probably as good as or probably would have been there and thereabouts for most england teams but there there is actually a distinct lack of kind of when, even when you look back on Fabio Capello's team, that was a pretty incredible England team in some ways. And there's a distinct lack of quality in several positions in the side. I mean, I think, I think Southgate does have some fundamental um, sort of personnel issues. But yeah, I mean, basically, if the, if the football gets more interesting, then people will, you know, tune back in, doubtlessly. The England national team, I'm not saying it's condemned to the dustbin of history. But uh, yeah, they certainly have lost a lot of goodwill in the last sort of few years, as I said. So I don't know. Yeah, it, it, it will take something quite drastic. Hopefully, you know, from an England fan perspective, something good at, um, at the World Cup. It should be noted as well that obviously, like, in Britain, we have, uh, I guess, five national teams, although that includes the Republic of Ireland. Sorry to any Irish listeners who are offended by that. Um, but yeah, you know, there's Northern Ireland, Scotland and Wales as well, and the Republic. And they're all actually doing quite well. So I think in many ways, a lot of people who would previously have been England fans have sort of gravitated towards maybe other national teams they have some sort of affiliation with. Like, I know I, um, at the last Euros, found myself kind of supporting Wales, which when I was growing up was never uh, never really an option, to be honest, because they were just never at major tournaments. In fact, I don't think I was even aware that Welsh people could be bothered to play football until I was about... 15 so yeah there's been a kind of differentiation a kind of uh dissemination of fans in the uk i think and people have spread out and started exploring international football beyond just the parameters of the england team so you have like welsh roots is that why you started rooting for them yeah no me personally that's that's why i did yeah but i mean there will be loads of people who have you know northern irish or scottish or maybe even like republic of ireland family who just will probably have gravitated towards those national teams as well. But that's not that abnormal in like the context of British sport. Like if you look at rugby, for instance, there's a lot of people with mixed loyalties. And, you know, the way that things work on these lovely sceptered isles is that basically we've all just like... that. Very few people can say they're of one nationality in the UK as opposed to like one of four or many more, obviously. But... Uh, yeah. Right. It seems like, it, I mean, it just seems like that England is losing fans because people are kind of returning to their roots as those teams are, are actually playing in major tournaments or getting close to playing in major tournaments. Yeah, I suppose it's not so much a return to the roots as maybe like a complete rediscovery of, you know, other national teams because it's kind of, you know, certainly when, like, for my generation, when we're growing up, like in the 90s and the early 2000s, you know, you could have been forgiven for thinking that England were the only national team in the UK, but that obviously wasn't the case. Um, so, I mean, you know, there are a lot of people who take issue with that. But, you know, I, I grew up in England, so that's that's how it kind of felt, I think, at times. And, uh, yeah, you know, a lot of other teams just weren't qualifying for major tournaments, or at least not with any regularity. So that's kind of changed a little. A lot of the other teams have strengthened in recent years while England have got weaker. So I suppose it's more of like a complete renewal of 
you know, awareness of those other teams for a lot of people living living in England, but also, I guess, living in Britain more generally. But yeah, we have a we have a kind of quite diverse dynamic here, I think, in terms of national allegiance to sport, which probably doesn't uh, translate to people who are kind of looking from the outside in. But um, yeah, I was interested in asking you uh, whether you think that USMNT, as I keep seeing it called everywhere, is uh, nobody. Nobody actually says the the acronym out loud. It's just for for you know typing purposes. But yes, sure. Let's. We can oh, continue. all right. Oh, here we go. Will falls down on the etiquette of American acronyms once again. I mean, just. <laughs> well, okay. So we've had this. We've had this conversation before about acronyms. Like y- you guys are not fans of acronyms no, over there. No, I'm not a fan of USMNT. No, no, I'm not talking just specifically about that acronym. Like even when I say like EPL, I'm not or, a fan of Pro Rel you know, either. UCL or yeah, Pro Rel. Yeah, <laughs> not a fan of Pro Rel. That's going to get you in trouble over here. No, but like we've we've talked about how acronyms. Like, that's a big. You guys just don't like acronyms over there as much. I know. This is like the. The sort of eternal cultural buddy comedy that is the Britain and the United States. You guys just have too much time. You're always you're always willing to just say <laughs> the entire word yeah. as opposed to doing the sensible thing, which is to to only use the first. Anyway, sorry that this is obviously a very interesting tangent, <laughs> but let's return to no, the, you're right. Let's return to the topic. Our loose European British lifestyles, all of us kind of hanging out on divans and like being paraded around everywhere, eating grapes. That's how yeah, it is. You know, we just it? have so much time, so much disposable time to, to say all the words in their proper form. Um, but no, my, my original question was, do you still think that the US uh, men's soccer team are drawing in new fans in America or are they all just uh, weirdos uh, who like to hang out in Sean's bar, which is what we spoke about several podcasts previous, just in case anyone is like recoiling in offense at my use of the term weirdos? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think... That's a really loaded question, something that isn't easily answered. Uh, but I'm generally skeptical of any time someone says that a specific event or team or soccer thing will get more Americans interested in soccer. Because that's something that goes back decades and decades in this country. Like, everyone thought that Pele playing in the U.S. would you know, lead to soccer suddenly becoming a mainstream sport. And certainly it did experience a brief popularity boom, but it went back to total anonymity after Pele left and and the USL shut, or the whatever league he played in shut down. Uh, The NASL, I think it was. Anyways, uh, so there was that, then there was the World Cup in 94, then there was MLS starting up a few years later, and then there's every World Cup cycle when everyone asks, is this the time that Americans really get into soccer? And it's just like, it didn't happen for so long, and then in the last five or... I would say 10 years, you've really seen soccer become more popular in the U.S., and I don't think it's specifically because of anything the U.S. national team did. I think it's because the sport is just much easier to follow, especially uh, leagues abroad, which are actually fun and, and worth, you know, like, gets you a part of this global conversation as opposed to being an MLS fan where you're basically, you know, in your own little weird silo, which is, like, fine if that's what you're into. But uh, I think the appeal of being a soccer fan in the U.S. is one of the appeals, at least, is it gets you a part of this global sport and suddenly we're not, you know, weird Americans rooting for our NFL and, you know, baseball and other sports that 
much of the world doesn't pay attention to, we get to be part of kind of like the the global obsession. I don't know. That was kind of how I got it. So like a long way of answering your question is that I don't think the U.S. national team is the main route of getting more Americans into soccer. I think just constantly exposing them to the best the world has to offer, whether it's you know, Champions League programming on main television channels or, you know, Sports Center covering soccer more or just generally seeping into regular sports coverage is how that's going to happen. I don't really see any reason why someone watching like the U.S. national team shellac Honduras 6-0 on a Friday night is going to be like, yes, this is the moment I am into the sport. That being said, uh, I would offer the caveat that if Christian Pulisic actually is like a world class player and really does become a truly like top player on the global soccer scene, I think that will get a lot of casual people into the sport more. Just knowing that it, uh, an American born in Hershey, Pennsylvania, is one of the best soccer players in the world, uh, I think that would do a lot if that turns out to be the case. So that's my that's my long answer to you. So I guess you're saying that like people supporting the national team is more of a symptom of people enjoying soccer in America as opposed to like the the inspiration per se. Yeah, it's hard to say. Also, I should bring up. I'm, I'm look. I need to find the statistics real quickly. Um, but re, you know, during like the World Cup qualifiers over the weekend. Uh, Mexico and the U.S. played their own respective games at almost the exact same time. Uh, the Mexico game started, I think, like a half hour before. And the Mexico game had a rating of, like, they got, like, over 3 million people watching in the U.S. And the U.S., I think, had a little over 1 million people for the U.S. national team. So, And that combines both English and Spanish-speaking channels. So... It's important to say that when we're talking about interest in soccer in the U.S., there already is a shit ton of interest in soccer in the U.S. It's mostly from, as we discussed last week, it's mostly from Latinos and Hispanics watching whatever soccer they may want to watch, and sometimes that often that isn't the U.S. national team. So there is that important caveat as well if we're going to talk about interest in soccer in the U.S. writ large versus interest in the U.S. national team specifically. I mean, that actually segues in a sort of slightly oblique way into something else that I did want to briefly mention on the podcast in terms of if you're talking about national team and football demographics, did you see the thing about uh, the birth rate in Iceland going up like considerably apparently in the aftermath of them beating, uh, beating England in the Euros last year? There was some like article in The Independent about how hospitals are seeing record like numbers of births nine months after that game i have no idea whether that's bullshit or not i strongly suspect it is bullshit somehow but uh yeah i was quite entertained by that like the idea that like whenever a football team wins we all just kind of descend into spontaneous unprotected sex because i mean that's the only way to celebrate <laughs> yeah. yeah as it happens i just wrote like a short little thing on that so i can answer all of your questions well not all of your questions <laughs> but i can tell you that the independent article cites an icelandic newspaper article on the subject and the icelandic newspaper article on the subject cites a tweet by a doctor who works in the hospital which was just like the tweet basically just said i just read i just gave a record number of epidurals for one shift and it just so happens to be nine months after the england game so it seems to be a highly scientific conclusion that was reached um 
As to whether, but like, remember, Iceland is a country of three hundred thousand people. So, like, if he's issued like four epidurals, that's probably <laughs> a record number. Like, I mean, I don't know how like how regular births are, considering how small the country. Anyways, that's how that started. Uh, but as to whether like the general sentiment of of like boning after your team wins something is true or not, it seems to actually be a thing. Uh, there was a actual like a rigorous economic study that uh, looked into whether birth rates in Barcelona and two and after so like remember in May two thousand nine when Barcelona won like a whole bunch of things I like think what they won the league and they won the Champions League uh, because Iniesta scored like this amazing goal or something. Anyways, uh, nine months later there was a birth boom in Barcelona, but not elsewhere in spain so they came to the conclusion that it was likely the result of happy couples uh having lots of unprotected sex as a result of (laughs) their team winning something which yeah i agree it's very like i get it in theory like why people would do this but i also (laughs) have never like I've been happy my team has won something before but i can't say it's ever given me like uncontrollable urge to have sex yeah i mean the way that the reports make it sound is like these babies kind of like emerge in iceland or barcelona shirts like they're just kind of they're football babies they're like a weird football generation that's just been kind of i don't know genetically engineered (laughs) by the the love of football um yeah i have to agree with you i've never been compelled oh my god our babies of football exactly like the euro 2016 generation following on from like you know generation x or whatever um, so yeah, it does sound like Iceland's going to have some sort of terrifying population surge and like sink into the sea or something under the sheer weight of babies being born after, after they always do make and... it sound so dramatic, but it's like the, the birth rate I think was something like 14% higher for like a two week period in Barcelona. And like, I, that's not very many babies. Like there really just isn't that many additional births to normal and i'm sure it's the same in iceland like you're talking about one doctor in one hospital who had to issue a few more epidurals than usual yeah like i mean what are their like i i I was just gonna make the same exact joke again that i made like literally two minutes ago but i really like it's important to remember that a baby boom in iceland is probably not a very significant boom uh i don't know it's just i i still just think it's really weird so here's an interesting thing that i saw when i was kind of just reading a few articles on on uh, that have reported on this phenomenon before is that like in one article they interviewed a bunch of couples who didn't have sex because they were happy their team won they had sex because everyone else was celebrating very loudly like at bars and in their apartments and stuff and they couldn't go to sleep so instead they had sex now that i can relate to <laughs> so i think like I, I think we're really like i think that's the source of the boom i think like it's a, it's a really romantic thing to imagine like this two couple like jumping up and down and celebrating because their team scored and then they hug each other and that hug turns into a kiss and that kiss turns into more and you know i think like you know maybe i i, I feel like that's kind of the vision everyone has and then they just like start fucking on the floor but i think it's more like they they celebrate, they have a few drinks, they go home, they go to bed, uh, the neighbors are still partying, they're laying in bed, and they just, you know... So what you're saying is, you understand sex more in the context of insomnia than jubilant celebration. <laughs> I'm a realist, Will. I understand that oftentimes sex is a very glorious, romantic product of a true moment of passion. 
But most of the time, it's, yeah, it's insomnia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, I, I hope there's not, like, a whole maternity ward doing that, vice, like, Iceland Viking clap thing. Uh, because I think, I don't know if the, so the, the blog is being edited while I'm, while I'm here, so I don't know if you ran with my, my suggested headline was Viking Thunder Thigh Clap. Uh, I don't know if they went with it, but <laughs> um, yeah, I, yeah, go for that. Yeah, why not? But um, <laughs> I mean, I think we can all admit that, like, post the immediate afterglow of the Euros, that is an extremely annoying uh, football habit. So uh, I hope that Generation Euros won't be doing that. Twenty. Years I want to. I want to return to the to the thing we were talking about before this for a bit because there was one question I wanted to ask you about uh, rooting for England. Uh, sure. Because there's something there's something I'm feeling about rooting for the U.S. right now, which is that I don't really want to be chanting pro U.S. things, given <laughs> like what the U.S. is standing for at the moment. I've never been like an ardent patriot to begin with, but it just doesn't feel right. Like literally draping myself in the flag or wearing an American flag bandana or chanting about how great the USA is and how I'll love it always. And I'm always loyal to it. Like that just feels weird right now. And I, like I watched the game on Friday. I, you know, didn't jump up and down when the team scored or anything, but I was happy they won, I guess, in some, you know, very low-key way. But I find it hard to get much more worked up than that right now, given what this country is at the moment. And I'm wondering if you feel anything similar, uh, given that England has basically told the rest of Europe to go fuck itself in a very uh, odd way. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, regardless of, like, geopolitics and the rise of right-wing nationalism, etc., etc., all of which has been extensively covered England um, have always had problems with that kind of thing you know whether it's been in the kind of in the popular zeitgeist or not so I mean like after the Germany friendly last Wednesday I think there was lots of reporting of how there were like England fans singing 10 German bombers which is basically a song about the second world war it's fairly crass uh, there's a lot of you know people singing about the IRA and stuff I think in many ways England fans are kind of, or not all, not all England fans by any means, but a lot of England, or at least a significant portion of the England match-going uh, fan base are very much stuck in a kind of 80s mindset with regards to, you know, the way they behave and stuff, which, you know, might well have contributed to some of the kind of difficulties that we had at uh, Euro 2016. I think there there is an underlying issue with that stuff with, the, with England fans anyway. So at a time like this when we have you know right wing kind of or like far right agenda basically dominating much of our political scene I think that stuff is enabled even further and there were a lot of journalists and a lot of people who went to the game who are kind of not regular England fans who were quite like I think shocked is probably a bit of a naive word but you know were I don't know, were, were, were deeply alienated by the behaviour of some of the England fans in, in Germany. Um, I have to say, I've, I've only been to like two or three England games in my life. I've, I've never been a huge kind of fan of um, international football in terms of going to games and stuff like that. Uh, and I've never encountered any issues at those games or anything that made me feel uncomfortable, really. It was just, they're pretty standard. Um, but... There is certainly, certainly with high profile games with England, there is a kind of tendency for it to descend into, you know, kind of petty right wing stuff. So, 
Yeah, I think I think England has always always had an issue with that, and that will always kind of be a little bit a part of the England like national team legacy, which. Yeah, as I said, does alienate a lot of people. But that's that's almost regardless of what's going on at the moment, even if it is enabled by the kind of current sort of political climate. Yeah, we get the same thing here. I mean, like I remember I went to a USA versus Germany friendly. Uh, it was in Washington, D.C. Uh, I think it was in 2014 or 2013. Uh, but anyways, I went to the game and like there were lots of people wearing like back-to-back world war champs like t-shirts and hats which is like all right that's fine like that's kind of funny i guess but like you know you get in the game and people are like chanting about beating them in world war ii and it's like like it's nothing again it's nothing that in like normal political times bothered me that much uh maybe it should have i don't know but i was uh, but it, it just at the time it struck me as kind of like a good natured and there was no uh accompanying violence or gestures or anything like that that made me concerned there was anything underlying it but there's always been kind of that rampant nationalism that i think has been waiting to break through uh like i went to a gay a world cup qualifier against uh panama in 2013 and the outlaws had a chant basically celebrating the fact that the U.S. Uh, was responsible for all these all these deaths and geopolitical contributions of building the Panama Canal, and it was like, I, I like that made me really uncomfortable. Like even at the time, like chanting at this team that like I think the chant was like we split your country in two or something like that. And it's like first of all, it's just dumb. Like like there's nothing to do with soccer. There's nothing to do with this. Like just get the but but beyond that it's like there there definitely is like this undercurrent of celebrating american exceptionalism and uh just general like colonial successes when playing smaller countries and i think that's kind of disgusting uh and i would like to see a lot less of it uh but that doesn't look like that's going anywhere particularly because of the current political climate where people where especially nationalists feel emboldened uh to say those types of things yeah i mean i guess i guess the thing is that uh, without sort of beyond reference to that and i'm certainly not like mitigating that necessarily but uh you know international football by its very nature it does play on like national divides there is always going to be some element of that and that's you know to an extent there you know like obviously within reason and stuff that is kind of par for the course. I, I'm, I don't have a massive issue with it per se. You know, like like you say, like, you know, if people are wearing back-to-back World War Victors t-shirts, is that the end of the world? I don't know, not necessarily, you know, like, if that's your thing, go for it. But I have to say that that doesn't mean people can't uh, express the fact that they feel alienated by that. And it doesn't mean that people should sort of have to bite that down and just continue to sort of root you know root for the team whatever whatever you do just root for your national team it's kind of like well if you go to a stadium and the atmosphere is something that you can't really square with yourself then i think it's probably fair enough for you not to be into international football and just to kind of not be engaged with it um that's like more of a general point obviously that doesn't necessarily take into account like as you say things that are more like overtly I don't know, I guess just overtly crass, really, but potentially bordering on, uh, you know, fully prejudicial. But, um, 
Yeah, I mean, as I said, international football it is going to play on that, that kind of prejudice. And I guess, as we've said, you know, even at times that are less kind of politically fraught than now, it does sort of enable a certain subsection of football fans to uh, behave in a way that's pretty, uh, pretty off-putting, pretty unpleasant at times. Yeah, I mean, there's this, I guess what turns me off is there's this paradox where people insist that it has nothing to do with politics, while at the same time, they the, a lot of chants or songs or just general celebration of a nation's superiority over another on a soccer field uh, is inherently political in a lot of ways. And so I think what my reaction to that has been has been to just kind of check out of it all. You know, I just don't go to games anymore. I don't go to bars, you know, with the outlaws or anything like that. And I think a lot of people, especially outlaws, would say, fine, you know, you figured out this scene isn't for you. And it's, and I think that's a perfectly reasonable uh, kind of, you know, reaction to have is to just be like, okay, you figured it out that you, this isn't your scene and you checked out of it. But I, I do kind of worry uh, what that's doing for people who do want to get into soccer, you know, kind of bringing it back to what you first asked me. Uh, maybe there are people who would like to be more involved with the U.S. national team thinking specifically, I guess, about uh, minority groups, women, people from other countries, you know, people whose whose parents or gra- grandparents are from other countries and they feel alienated by that behavior. Uh, I don't know. That's, that's just kind of a, a hypothesis. Yeah, I mean, also, you know, obviously in, in Europe and in European football and, and English football, probably European football to a greater extent, um, you know, club football is also political. Um, football generally tends to be pretty political. Uh, I always think it's pretty facile when people uh, talk about separating politics and football. I mean, or politics and sport in general, actually, the two things have always been uh, kind of inherently linked. But uh, yeah, you know, there's no there's no kind of avoiding that, even in club football. Um, obviously, there are a lot of left-wing and right-wing kind of clubs or clubs, you know, whose fans are associated with various kind of political movements in Europe. And, you know, for many people in many leagues, there's there's genuinely no real escaping that. But I suppose the thing is, with a club, if you don't like the attitude of a club or you don't like the attitude of their fans, you can basically pick another club or not feel an affiliation to that club, etc., while, you know, with your national team, that's often where the whole kind of nation gets represented in a, you know, in a kind of global sense, say at the World Cup or at the Euros or, or whatever it is. And, you know, if, you're, if your national team is sort of finding itself via its fan base or the sort of people who go and support it, getting gradually aligned with one kind of general political bent, then that can be more difficult in that, you know, a lot of people feel that they are implicitly being represented by their national team. And yet, if there's then a load of stuff happening at those games that they not only feel uncomfortable with, but would also kind of actively disagree with or like condemn, that's obviously a lot more difficult. And I think that's probably, you know, when we're talking about the issues that that kind of possibly plague certain sections of the fan bases of England and, and as you say, the USA then uh, that's kind of, that's more difficult, I think. It's more problematic because, as I said, there's no, real, there's, there, there's no real choice with your national team unless, as I said, you know, you live in the UK and you think, right, well, fuck this for a laugh. I'm going to go and support, like, Wales or Scotland or whatever. Right, and that, I mean, that's kind of where I'm at, I guess. Like, not that I'm supporting Wales or Scotland, but, like, yeah, in international tournaments, I pretty much just pick a team that I you know, want to casually support for that tournament. And sure. I watch the USA games, but I don't like, you know, I guess, I guess in a way I treat it a lot like a club tournament. 
like I have the team that I feel tied to, but there's another team that I kind of like just like for whatever other reason, and it kind of takes a secondary rooting interest. Uh, I don't know, but I, I, I and I think like in general, international tournaments are just becoming a lot more like club tournaments in a lot of ways. Uh, but that's that's a topic for another 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 podcast, I think. Yeah, yeah, but I know it's a good point you make, as in I found myself certainly at Euro 2016 when uh, when England went out to Iceland. I can't say that I was remotely upset. I was quite. I mean, I was quite amused, first of all, but, <laughs> and this is like, and this is not kind of me gloating. I mean, you know, I've, I've kind of supported England at, at tournaments when I, when I was younger and as a kid and stuff, but you, I just kind you of. You were like, no, this is actually funny to me. Yeah, no, I was, I was, I wasn't upset even remotely. I was like, this is funny. This is objectively comical. And also, you know, Iceland were a game side who, you know, tried the best underdogs. It was hard not to like them. So yeah, I mean, you know, I imagined that. As people like you and I become more alienated by the state of, you know, hardcore nationalist football fans, we'll probably feel more inclined to just support the teams that whose narrative is kind of, you know, most appealing to us, I guess. Yeah. All right. Should we move on to this week's manager fight? Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Good people of chips. This is a very special occasion because this week's manager fight is not just a manager fight, it is a manager melee. We have decided to spice things up a bit here and include not just one manager for each side, but to loop in the last four managers of both the U.S. and the U.K. national teams for a giant manager melee. So, uh, Will, first of all, let me ask you, I, I think we actually didn't lay out the ground rules beforehand. Are the, is, it, is this like a team melee, or is it just like who, which one manager is going to win? No, yeah, it's a t- I think it's more like a team melee, like the sort of thing you see... You know, like before, like Russia turns up at a major tournament, and there's loads of videos emerge of like their football fans training in the woods for like two aside brutal kind of ten man brawls based on two teams. You know, let's say Spartak Moscow and Zenit St Petersburg. I imagine it more to be like that. You know, like a horrible fight in the woods between these managers all at once in a big sort of chaotic jumble. Okay, great. So obviously we have. On the U.S. side, we have Bruce Arena, and then uh, Jurgen Klinsmann, Bob Bradley, and then another Bruce Arena. Now, this, this doesn't mean there, there are not three people here. We There are two identical Bruce Arenas. Okay, just getting that out of the way. And then for the U.K. side, we have Southgate, Allardyce, Hodgson, and Capello. Uh Will, I don't think this looks good for you and your your UK side. I mean, you've got three incredibly old, withered, unhealthy people and then Gareth Southgate on your side, whereas we have the spry Jurgen Klinsmann and Bob Bradley and then two kind of, you know, okay, I'll give you Bruce Arenas. This isn't the healthiest guy in the world, but he's kind of plucky, you know? He's got got that long reach and that long island uh uh fight in him i don't know i think i think this is a pretty easy one what do you think well having just you know chatted a load of liberal pinko bullshit about how we're not nationalists i strongly disagree with you (laughs) and i'm massively backing the england lads obviously yes hodgson is going to go down with like the first punch like not the face (laughs) not the face and just kind of get like he just might actually die of natural causes I think, before the fight I even breaks out, just the anticipation of it. I think Sam yeah. Allardyce 
could take the last 10 USA managers on his own, <laughs> I think he would just plough through them like, come on, you bastards, and he would just batter them. So, no way. <laughs> Sam Allardyce... <laughs> Sam Allardyce is going to drink like a pint of bitter, like pop. I was just—I was just going to say how many pints of wine before this <laughs> yeah. fight has Sam Allardyce had? A pint of bitter, a pint of rosé, and then he's gonna like—he's just—he he drinks those. I imagine like Popeye eats spinach, then he just becomes incredibly strong, and more importantly, incredibly angry, and <laughs> then he just plows through whichever, however many USA national team coaches you can throw at him. There haven't been enough to take down <laughs> Sam Allardyce after a pint of wine. So, I mean, I'm going for the England ads. And then obviously, actually, Fabio Capello is quite hard as well. But with, before we get into accusations of fascism with you, Aaron, <laughs> let me simply say that he strikes me as a hard, wizened Italian man with no uh, <laughs> predilection towards horrible politics. Simply, <laughs> he strikes me as being tough. You wouldn't mess with Capello. Uh, and you know Gareth Southgate's quite quite sprightly. Capello's well. seventy though. Like I mean, no matter how hard he may have been at one time, or you know how hard he spiritually is, <laughs> uh, he's he's seventy years old. I mean, come on. Yeah, but have you seen the guy? He looks like he's made of like beaten leather. He's incredible. He's just like <laughs> he's, you would never be able to like. It's true. He does look like he's he's smoked so many cigarettes <laughs> that he his his face can no longer wither anymore, and he basically looks like a catcher's mitt. He has been cured like a fine ham, and there is no way that anyone would be able to penetrate his, you know, impervious hide. So I agree. Yeah. I agree with you that I can envision this scenario where, like, Klinsman is draped over Allardyce's back, trying to like weigh him down, but Allardyce is just swinging him around like a weapon. Uh, but the thing is. I'm convinced that Bob Bradley, like, if you wrong him, he will destroy you. Like, that man has a steely gaze that few, few men have crossed in his life. I mean, the dude voluntarily went to Egypt while they were having a revolution to coach there and just waded through the crowds of Tahrir Square. Uh, <laughs> and is, like, seriously, this is a thing he did. And he just, like, walked around me. Like, dude, like, literally in the middle of a revolution, just went outside and was like, I'm going to go meet the people. Like, this, this is that, this is, the, this is the psyche of the man you're dealing with here. And nobody touched him. So I think, <laughs> I think you have to account for this, that Bob Bradley is basically, like, the superhero in this melee. And I'm more I'm more picturing Bob Bradley as like Lenin during the Russian Revolution now. And like actually, <laughs> if he grew a little goatee, he wouldn't be a million miles away from a kind of Lenin lookalike. So I don't think yeah. that necessarily makes him hard so much as kind of just it's scary. And I don't know what would he be willing to do to facilitate the revolution? Who knows? I think you're underestimating Bradley's power. When you say that Allardyce could destroy him without really thinking twice. Well, I do I do maybe. I do think, however, that Klinsman would get just absolutely snapped in half i mean he's super healthy but he's like basically a <laughs> california hippie at this point so yeah you i don't really know what take kind of on sam allardyce on like there. you can't take on sam allardyce on like a diet of kale like it's just not gonna happen so I, I, personally look you say bob bradley would be able to you know anyone who crossed him he'd be able to just destroy them 
But I saw uh, several Premier League sides cross him during his time at Swansea. <laughs> and uh, generally, it was Swansea who ended up getting destroyed. So my personal I'm sorry, view... I didn't see anyone challenging Bob Bradley to a fight. I saw them beating him as a soccer coach, which I've never said that he doesn't get beaten regularly <laughs> as a soccer coach. But as soon as, as soon as the manager challenges him to a brawl on the touchline and beats him soundly... Uh, I stand by what I said. Okay, well, then we've come to an impasse because my personal opinion is that Sam Allardyce would be practically immortal uh, <laughs> with a pint of wine in him. So I'm backing Sam and the boys. He also wouldn't move. Like, you could you could just <laughs> run away from him. Like, and not even run. You could just stride confidently away from him. And he he would, I don't know, I feel like he would probably, like, go for one reach with his hand with his kind of like stubby T-Rex arms but once he doesn't get you like what is he gonna do chase you Sam Allardyce has never chased anything in his life give me a break do you like the way a fight works is the man who holds the field is the winner you can't you know this you're, you're, you're talking about like some sort of long-term military strategy where like all of america runs away from the giant godzilla-esque behemoth that is big sam and then hopefully he just ties himself out and sort of crumbles to dust or something like yeah know. i learned i learned all my fighting from like 90s video games where there's like the big boss and you could just kind of like run in and around and like just run under and behind them and then slash them with your sword a few times and then repeat like for 40 minutes as you slowly dwindle down their health that's yeah. my that's that's what I think a fight is. Is that not what a fight is? <laughs> no. Um, yeah, no. But per, we, you know, we did say this was in the woods as opposed to like the end of Doom Three. So I think in the woods, Sam Allardyce would not be <laughs> would not be moved from his woodland kind of battle zone. He would hold. I don't think Sam Allardyce goes in the woods very much anymore. I think Sam Allardyce is kind of like a luxurious city type person. <laughs> I don't really true. envision him being like, oh, oh I'm gonna go in the like hunting for a day. I don't know, that doesn't. <laughs> there's no, there's no wine in the woods, Will. Well, that is true. That is true. Maybe you've found the chink in my armor there, but um, yeah. Nonetheless, I think that uh, Big Sam. Sorry, I, I'm not going to move on this point because, firstly, half of my managerial—sorry, not managerial career—half of my journalistic career has been built on uh, me writing articles in praise of Sam Allardyce, uh, and also I just love Sam Allardyce. So, yeah, no, I'm not going to budge on this point. My professional integrity depends upon it. All right, I think you've argued your case well. So, and the more I think about it, the more I see two, you know, two Bruce Arenas who I'm not you know, confident of in a fight with Klinsman, the hippie, and Bob Bradley, who's fantastic, but he can only do so much himself, especially against Sam Allardyce. So uh, even with the even with the caveat that I don't buy your Capello theory uh, and the fact that Hodgson is basically a non-entity, uh, I think you make a compelling point. So I'll give this one to the UK. Well, there we go. I wish I could think of some sort of relevant historical battle in which we'd beaten you so I could chant about it. Um, but uh, I... You burned down the White House once, so... Yeah. Also, wasn't there some, like, other war we won? I think we won one of them. <laughs> you won the big one, but then we won the other one. I, there, there are lyrics there somewhere to the chant, but I can't think of them, so... Look, anyway, look, let's not reference any wars. Let's just, yeah, I'm, I'm magnanimous in victory. Um, yeah, 
in, in a very British way. Hopefully this violent victory will bring about peace in the future. Hopefully, yes. Until next week when we do another manager fight. <laughs> Until the violence resumes inevitably next week. All right, let's wrap it up. I got I got things to do. Uh, that's not true. I don't have anything to do. Uh, <laughs> but Tim, Tim has things to do. So let's let's wrap it up. Uh, what do you do? You want to tell anyone anything? Yeah, um, I wrote uh, the cult on. Um, on Pavel Nedved yesterday, uh, former Juventus and Czech Republic legend. And uh, I also today am writing something on analysing the smoking habits of uh, football players and managers. So, Please tell me the Arsene Wenger smoking picture is going to be in this article. Of course the Arsene Wenger smoking yes. picture is going to be in the article. <laughs> Um, so yeah <laughs> the health um, guru of our generation <laughs> smoking away oh, yeah God, okay. exactly okay, on, I look on forward the tabs to that. Um, yeah so that's that's me for the week what about you uh, I have something coming out on Thursday I'll give you a short little preview is that in I don't know if there's going to mean anything to anyone in the UK but in 1994 a college basketball coach went to see a movie about another college basketball coach who violated a bunch of NCAA regulations and the coach was so inspired by the movie that he called up a local reporter and confessed his violations. Uh, <laughs> and so I'm writing about that because the big like college basketball finals are this weekend. So yeah, that's that's look look forward. To, it's actually a really cool story. That's just the preview, but there's a lot more to it uh, that I'm really excited to tell. So there's that. Uh, Thank you, as always, for listening. We will uh, – please – oh, I always forget to do this. But, yeah, we have – you can contact us, Twitter, uh, email. Our Twitter is Chips Podcast. Email is chips at vicesports.com. Uh, we love to hear from you. Or you can just tweet at us. Uh, and that's pretty much it, I guess. Will, have a good week and enjoy the rest of this international break. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. 
Code PROGRAM.